This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Everyone needs more vacation, right? The new United Gateway card knows how to take you away with great travel rewards and no annual fee, ever. The wait for vacation is over. Tap now or visit unitedgatewaycard.com to apply. Everyone needs more vacation, right? The new United Gateway card knows how to take you away with great travel rewards and no annual fee, ever. The wait for vacation is over. Tap now or visit unitedgatewaycard.com to apply. You know what I want? Hello and welcome to the Raptors Extra Weekly Podcast. I'm your Samson Folk, and today, and over the span of a few days, I'm collecting interviews from my colleagues at Raptors Republic. There's too much talent there not to get this big conglomerate of writers' thoughts. And the first person joining me in this very special podcast is Andrew Damlin. Spends a lot of time covering the 905. He's an ace out there. Just got a new radio show with Saga960 where he talks about the 905 and is constantly writing great stuff for Raptors Republic. How are you doing today, Andrew? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm I'm doing good. We're chatting a bit before the podcast. Everything seems peachy keen, like Avril Lavigne. And the first question I had was after reading your tryout, I, I'm very curious, have you learned how to do a Eurostep yet? Well, I haven't played basketball since that day, so I guess you could say no to that. No um, basketball. Interesting. I mean, no, it's just with two kids and this job and the 905 as my side job that I like to make my main job with the amount of time I spend on it. Uh, it's been hard to get in a couple of runs, so I try to go to the gym every now and again. But uh, no, no basketball since the open tryout. How do you how do you balance all of that? You've got a lot going on. I do. I got a really supportive wife who tells me to follow my dreams, which is huge. And I got two jobs that I absolutely love. So I was actually an accountant for five years before moving into sports media. So I'm really appreciative of the ability to cover sports for a living. So that kind of gives me that uh, motor, if you will. Is there any crossover between accounting and sports writing? What do you find that you learn during accounting or any type of ethic you learn during accounting that applies now to sports journalism? I'd say about nothing other than the ability <laughs> to use i'd say other than the ability to use microsoft excel proficient proficiently and uh that's been helpful in building some statistics and analysis a little bit but um i've tried to sort of do away with uh, sort of everything i'd learned uh, previously in accounting and just sort of focus on what my original dream was was to get into this field uh so there isn't much crossover to be honest okay and not to be too sticky on this subject but I'm interested now that you say you were an accountant before, what do you find, because like you were saying, losing the accounting, stepping into this new work that's more based on the creativity of, of your brain, your ability to tell a story, 
and accurately depict what's happening with the 905 with the Raptors at a given time. What do you think of analytics presence in basketball coming from a very analytical work background? And, you know, I think it's it's great. Obviously, the knowledge of the game and the especially the appreciation of like the three point shot, for example, and, you know, the, the fact that three is worth more than two, this sort of prevailing narrative has really taken hold. And it's especially it's like hyper done. So in the G League, uh, they like the games like the 905 shoot 40 plus threes a game opponents shoot 50 plus threes a game. So there's an appreciation there um, for, you know, that's obviously the optimal way to play. But stylistically, I, I'm not the biggest fan of it, just, just watching it aesthetically, I should say. And uh, it's funny, I asked uh, Gemma Malalela, the head coach of the 905, I, like, you know, I told him, I know that this is the best way to play, but do you like to play this way? And he's like, listen, Andrew, we're not, gonna play, we're not playing in the 40s anymore. It's a modern game, and uh, I like to get him up. So he seems to really enjoy this style of play. Uh, but, uh, so I, I get why it's done and I appreciate that that's the right way, but it's not exactly how sort of my ideal way of watching the game. And just quickly, before we move on, what is your ideal way? Is there a team that embodies the damn version of basketball? Well, I, listen, I love how the Lakers play right now. Uh, I love yeah. how, I, I just love how I, listen, I like, I like a good back to the basket game. And Anthony Davis is really the only guy that gets like, here, dump the ball into me. And I'm going to create something. And it doesn't have to be a, a shot necessarily. It could be a pass as well. It's just, the, and they, they run so much and they have so many alley-oops to, you know, guys like JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard are, you know, make, you know, obviously LeBron makes them look great and LeBron's going to make many players look great. But that style of play, just playing a lot around the rim, running the ball and having some mix of post-ups is, is nice. I, I like seeing that. Yeah, I, I remember growing up just, seeing different players come in and out of vogue in the league and seeing how post-up players, guys like Al Jefferson, who used to terrorize teams and used to be, you know, all-stars year in and year out, wouldn't really have a place in the league now unless they change things a considerable amount. It's, uh, it's interesting to see. But to get into what you've written this year, in your piece about the 905's transcendent culture, you said, just like every previous season of the 905's existence, the expectation will not only be to maximize their NBA prospects' potential, but to make a fourth straight deep playoff run. Given the team culture that has been built by the 905, it seems likely that both of those goals will be accomplished once again by the G League powerhouse. What are the standouts that run concurrent with those plans and those that run against them? So it's always, it's always a balance, right? And, uh, you know, this year, the 905 have a lot of NBA-experienced players. They have, like, Tyler Ennis, who's a first-round pick, Brampton boy, Canadian. And they have uh, Justin Anderson, who just joined the team, also a four-year NBA vet. But they also have two two-way players in O'Shea Brissett and Shamari, Shamari Pons. And to be honest, you know, Ennis and Anderson have far outperformed Brissett and Pawn so far, but, uh, but you know, Ennis and Anderson aren't on two-way contracts. They can't just be promoted, moved up and down to the NBA team. And so it's this balance you have to strike of getting Pawns and Brissett their reps in with trying to win the games. And, and Anderson has been so good. He's only been there for five games. He dropped 40 in a school day game uh, a, few day, a few days ago. He dropped 35 last night in a one-point loss for the 905. So he's going to get his minutes, but you know, a guy like Shamari Pons, uh, sort of like a microwave scorer, six foot, 
off the bench. He was great in St. John's, a top five scorer in college. He's only shooting 42% from the field. And if I'm looking at it right, 25% from the three-point line. So he, ha- he really hasn't been that great, but he's, he's got to be a consistent player for them. And he's averaging over 30 minutes for them right now. So he has to get, he has to develop them while trying to win as well. And it's a difficult balance for Malalela to strike, but that is sort of the edict is to certainly give the two ways, you know, the exposure and in the development in hopes that they can step in, especially with a team that's had so many injuries this year, like the Raptors, they may actually be called upon to play spot minutes later in the season. Is Chris Boucher maybe the, the best version of, getting that two-way, getting the guy enough exposure at the big leagues and also getting him enough reps in the G League comparatively Absolutely. to other players? Is is he the guy? I mean, his his story is insane, but absolutely. Like last year, he was not ready to be an NBA player, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, and this year, you know, after 37 games in the G League last year, he wins the MVP and Defensive Player of the Year award. And you still weren't quite sure if he was ready, uh, but he had to be ready when Serge Ibaka went down. And in those 10 or so games, he was he was amazing. Um, and, you know, I didn't know what to expect from him because it just looks like whenever he goes up for a shot, it looks like his body's going to snap in half, half the time. Um, that was last year, especially. Now you can see he's got a little bit stronger, a little bit more balanced. And just the energy he plays with. The, the rebounding he's able to do, and he's got a couple tip dunks and putbacks. He's able to bang with these guys that have 50, 60 pounds on him. And it's, it's really incredible to see. And, like, you know, I try to play scout when I'm at the 905 games. Like, that's what I'm trying to do to see which guys might actually translate into NBA players. And I couldn't quite tell uh, after watching 37 Chris Boucher games if he could do it. And, uh, you know, I asked Blake Murphy before the season, what, what do you think? And he's like, he, I think he might be a classic quad A player, kind of too good for the G League, not quite good enough for the NBA. And though he hasn't proven himself to be a, you know, a steady player in the NBA quite yet, who knows if he'll stick, the energy he's played with uh, and the little mix-in of three-point shooting has been really encouraging. And it's a ridiculous story with Boucher. He only started playing when he was like a teenager, came from nothing, grew up homeless when he was, te- when, uh, you know, in his early teen years. And just to see where he's ascended to now is, is incredible. For a guy, my, my, the qualm I have with, the trepidation I have with projecting him as a, a really good eighth or ninth big man, eighth or ninth man as a big man, is the pick and roll defense. He's obviously, his help side timing is pretty good. He's got the length to be a major deterrent at the rim. And like you said, He's been pretty great so far this year. Everyone's been uber impressed with him. Having seen him over, you said, 37 games, and even then being like, wow, I'm not so sure about this guy. Blake Murphy has had you know, his thumb on the heartbeat of the Raptors and the Raptors 905 more than maybe anyone and maybe any writer has had on both teams in an organization. Even he wasn't so sure. Lewis kept telling me that Chris Boucher was going to be very good, and I was like, okay, great. Hmm. But I'm I'm gonna appeal to your authority here, having you no know, knowing that you've watched so many of his games. What do you think about his pick and roll defense in the G League, and will that translate well to the Raptors? Because I still haven't seen him in that many pick and rolls yet. Right. No. In the first half of the G League season, he was constantly just out of position on defense, including in pick and roll and. 
Malalela would ha- would harp on it in every post game scrum about you know how he needs to to obviously hedge better on the pick and roll, but he had a big emphasis on post defense. And for a guy so slight, he would constantly allow bigger players sort of deep post position. And by the time they would catch it, it would be too late. So it was a skill he really worked on is sort of getting meeting his man closer to the you know to half quarter the three point line not allowing him to get such deep post position and pushing him out. So that's something he's improved on. And the other thing that he's improved on last year to this year, and you could see it in the NBA, is when he would close out on three-point shooters, he would be flying at guys all the time, flying past guys on upfakes. And he's, I mean, I guess it's just a matter of him being really excited, perhaps, that he's in the NBA. But the, the discipline he's shown on closeouts has improved. And also, he's had a bunch of, like, verticality blocks at the rim for the, for the Raptors. He would never get that kind of block when he was with when he was with the G League team. He would always just go for the huge SWAT, constantly get himself in foul trouble. Now he's obviously been coached and disciplined enough to to just you know jump up and not go for the highlight reel block. He, I think he averaged like four plus blocks in the G League, which is kind of like uh, which is kind of like too many almost. I feel like <laughs> it's like because like, because you know he's going for it way too much. I feel like. If I remember correctly, like Marcus Camby as a Raptor, I think he might have led the league in blocks in his first season or something like that. And he was not a good defender. He was just going for the big SWAT. So you can see there's a lot more discipline to his defensive game. And that should only approve. Again, he's, he's only really a rookie. So there's so much more to go for him. And the fact that he's absorbed all of this so quickly is pretty impressive. Yeah, there, there's a parallel for that. I For the Black Box Report that Lewis and I do, our weekly column, a few weeks back, I looked at every single offensive rebound that the Raptors had given up in the year so far and was looking at who were the, the, the repeating offenders for the Raptors. And that being Fred Van Vliet the most often, but Serge Ibaka, just because of how much more active he is in contesting jump shots and shots at the rim, he was much worse at boxing out than Marcus Hall because Marcus Hall often would kind of feign a shot block attempt or even contest the shot, and he'd immediately go back to his guy for the box out. And that meant that he was affecting less shots, and it meant that the team was failing Serge Ibaka a little bit at times. But like you said, Chris Boucher, not as disciplined as Serge Ibaka. Serge Ibaka's been doing this for a long time. And Chris Boucher may be jumping too much. Serge Ibaka is maybe, as far as toning down the jumping, but also being a high-level shot contester is a good thing for Chris Boucher to work towards and yeah that's thanks for lending your um your expertise on the 905 to this hearing about ponds boucher brissett anderson all these guys has been very uh very interesting and moving on from the 905 then what are your plans for the christmas day game because this is the first one that the raptors are gonna have maybe the only one ever who knows let's see i guess we'll see how it goes in the future but what, what are your plans for the game well, I do have the day off, which is sweet. Uh, I'll be with my family, and hopefully they'll, the, two, the two kids will be napping for the great portion of this game. So I'll just be watching the game uh, with my wife in the basement. should be a nice, we'll cuddle by the fire. It'll be, it'll be a perfect uh, afternoon. But just keep it at simple, really. Yeah, I think that's as good as it gets. That's how you're meant to take in a Christmas Day game. It's not a whole bunch of stakes. You're either with your family on Christmas or whatever any person does on Christmas or what you consider the holiday, and you just you make it work and you enjoy it. And you get to add a little bit of Raptors into that. And no, before it, we, it is ideal. Yeah. 
Do you do you like the Raptors game better on Christmas or do you like the Boxing Day game? I have, I have no preference. I'm, I'm usually actually working on Boxing Day, so I, I'd say Christmas just to be able to watch it as a fan rather than sort of watch it as a... You know, I work at a major sports network sort of creating the highlights, so you don't, you watch the game differently when you're trying to put together a highlight pack. You're not quite enjoying the game as you would as a as a regular viewer, so definitely Christmas for me. Yeah, oh, that's such a good point. I'm going to have to bring you back on to discuss that aspect of how you watch the game. Definitely. Okay. I'm... <laughs> I'm kicking myself for not asking about that. But the last thing um, that I want to talk about in this short little interview is which all-NBA team do you think Pascal Siakam will make? It feels like the second all-NBA team. Uh, I'm still sort of incredulous at what I see every every night from him. Uh, it's, I mean, maybe I'm still too late to it, but whenever he sort of rises up for an elbow three, I still don't feel great about it, though it's going in at a pretty high clip. Um, I just think that the, you know, the, the, the five above him, it, it, whatever position you want to slot him at forward or guard, it, he's not going to be making any first teams. It seems to me but behind, you know, Giannis or LeBron at the forward spots. It doesn't seem like it. So if, so if he keeps this up, then I think he's been noticed enough down South too. And the, you know, the average voter will probably put him on the second team as my guess. Do you have a thought as to where he'll go? I, I think I agree with you. I think second team is um, if he continues playing this well, Second team, if there's some sort of regression, I'm not sure which area it is. Shooting would be the most obvious one, I guess. If there's a, a meaningful regression to maybe 34% on pull-ups above the break, something like that, or just shooting above the break, that really takes away his validity as a shooter there, makes it a little bit tougher for him to operate inside the arc as well. Maybe things taper down, which I don't think will happen, but is a possibility then you could see third team because there's so many good forwards in the NBA. But I, I'm an optimist, like you, and uh, I believe second team for Pascal Siakam. I'm glad yeah. we're in agreement on that. Um, before too. we get out of here, I would the floor is yours. You can, re- you can recommend a book you like. You could tell the people where to find all your stuff. Just the floor is yours. Tell the people what to do, where to find you. Thanks. No, I will. Anything I write will be on Raptors Republic. You can search my name, Andrew Damlin and Raptors Republic. But the biggest thing I want people to know is that I have a weekly Raptors 905 radio show uh, every Friday at noon on AM 960 Mississauga. And we've already had Tyler Ennis on the show. We've had Justin Anderson. We've had Blake Murphy, who both of us uh, seem rather fond of. And uh, this week, I'm chasing a major, major guest that, uh, I'm, that I'm just about to get confirmation will come on, and I'll tweet that out. So that show is, means a lot to me to be able to have that platform an hour a week to showcase the 905 is huge. And the last thing is you can follow me at transition underscore D. Perfect. And yeah, listener, if, uh, if you're interested in the Raptors 905 at all, or maybe you just want to pass off Andrew's wisdom and knowledge as your own to your coworkers, something of the like, you can listen to his radio show. And uh, thank you very much for listening, Andrew. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Samson. All right. And we'll be moving on to the next interview, which is Lucas Weiss. So thank you for listening, Andrew. A second thank you. And to the listener, see you after the uh, transition. 
And welcome back. If you're listening, you just heard me talking to Andrew Damlin. As I said on there, the next interview is Lucas Weiss, and I'm joined by him right now, a colleague at Raptors Republic, a wonderful writer, and maybe the best voice I've ever heard. He's going to lend that audible chocolate, much like Matt Schantz, to this podcast, and uh, we're all going to be better for hearing it. Lucas, how are you doing today, man? Sam, I'm fantastic. Thanks so much for the kind words. And anytime I get to chat Raptors basketball, it's a great day. So let's get after it. Yeah. Well, before we get into it, is there is there one storyline specifically that has tickled your fancy this year? Ari the Raptors. Well, I wrote about it in a recent Raptors Republic column, and that's the bench. I think coming into this season with Kawhi leaving, with Danny Green leaving, the questions surrounded about this team's depth, particularly at the guard position. Obviously, we have Kyle Lowry, Fred Van Vliet, but how was Norman Powell going to perform? But particularly Terrence Davis and the bench crew, and they have surpassed my expectations. Terrence Davis, an undrafted player. He played for Ole Miss, averaging 42.4% from three, a 62.6 true shooting percentage. He's been fantastic. I think Chris Boucher has been really improving on defensive end and really inserting that energy into the lineup coming off the bench. And then Rondé Hollis Jefferson. I mean, before the season, Nick Nurse was really questioning his character and buy-in into the team's identity. And he's really responded by being that hustler who goes after the ball and really provides that figure off the bench. So if there was one storyline, I would say that the Raptors bench and how well that they have improved over the course of this season has really been my uh, storyline thus far. You highlighted the true shooting percentage and the three-point percentage from downtown for Terrence Davis. I assume that's the most outstanding part of his progression to you. You obviously didn't see him as that type of shooter coming in. Neither did I. What do you think of that progression? Oh, it's just been fantastic. I think the fact that he's been able to get open, make those quality shots. But I also think, too... Sam, it's just his overall energy. He just seems very engaged when he's on the floor. He's really buying into the system that Nick Nurse is trying to implore. He passes the ball with intensity, finding open shots, and he's sinking them from downtown and really providing that momentum for the Raptors on the offensive side of the ball when he comes off the bench. But I also think defensively he's also improving as well. I think he's shown strides in that game obviously has a lot more to improve on but I think for TD too he's done a really nice job at uh, providing that energy off the bench and being one of the surprises this season and and continuing that line of players that have been undrafted for the Raptors that have had great success it's great to see yeah I think it's interesting that the ethos of this Raptors bench is kind of a do-it-all mentality. Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, Boucher, Terrence Davis, seemingly ready to grab any part of any role that's put in front of them. Whereas the Raptors bench, I think, during the Raptors, the DeRozan-Lowry era, even the Lowry-Kawhi era, I think that a lot of people had very specific roles, and they were a bit scared to jump out of those. 
and very, very comfortable within them. Think of uh, Patrick Patterson, yes. CJ Miles, Dewan Wright, what have you. All these guys knew a very specific part of their game. But with the Raptors, the start of the season, the way everything turned out, everybody was allowed room to grow, change, improve, and to become different versions of a player that they were in part of, but not the full part of. And we see guys like Terrence Davis not only embrace his job as a pick-and-roll ball handler, which wasn't always in the cards for him, but his ability to hunt shots for himself, which is not something that Raptors bench players have had a lot of the time. Usually there's a bit of a hesitancy, but in this Raptors bench, aggressiveness, intuitiveness seems to be ingrained in their in their DNA. So I'm really glad you brought that up. It's It's been a really interesting development so far. And there's all obviously more improvement to come over the course of the season. Fred Van Vliet said in a scrummer, you know, week or so ago that they may not know what they're doing yet, but they play with energy. They play with intensity, which is really nice to see. And certainly, you know, it, they still have ways to go to be, quote unquote, a bench mob, if you will, of the Raptors benches of the past that we that, that you just spoke about. But the fact that they have this depth, Sam, it presents a unique opportunity for Nick Nurse now, particularly with Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka coming back. What are they going to do with all these pieces? Because certainly they had success without Lowry and Ibaka in the lineup. And now with them coming back and trying to fit them back into the rotation, it presents a unique opportunity to see how these pieces can all fit together. It's a great problem to have, to have depth. And I think teams in this NBA would, would die to have the depth that the Raptors have right now, top to bottom. Yeah, and it should be so interesting to see. Nick Nurse last year was looking more at maximizing his top eight, top nine players. Now he's trying to maximize a full roster where the bottom end isn't veterans, it's potential players with a heap of a pen, potential and guys who are just trying to step into the league and grow their game, whereas last year it was more about everybody knew their role, so you just had to maximize them within it. This year you're trying to grow and accommodate expanding roles while maximizing others, and there's incumbent players like Lowry, like Abaka, and you still have to accommodate for Siakam getting more of the offense. Fred getting more of the offense. All these things are changing and growing, and watching Nick Nurse try and mediate that this year should be one of the most interesting things and one of the most important factors when you consider his coach of the year candidacy. But I wanted to talk to you specifically about you. You grew up in a sports family. Your father, a recreational golfer. Your mom, an integral part of Canadian tennis tournament operations. And your older brother... As you said, blessed with athletic genes, specializing in competitive tennis. Outside of their experiences, what was your relationship to sports? And how did that affect your choice to eventually cover uh, seemingly every sport I can think of? Bylines in hockey, basketball, baseball, tennis, etc. Well, we grew up in a very sports-centric family, Sam. I played sports, but you know, not the level of my parents and my brother. But I love to watch and cover sports because of the stories. The stories of sports bring us together. 
they inspire us, they lift our spirits. Sometimes they make us sad, but at the end of the day, sports is such an integral part of our culture and society. And for me as a little boy, I remember watching the Raptors, the Leafs, the Blue Jays, even though they were pretty bad in those years, but also huge sporting events like the Super Bowl, the Masters. Those would be integral staples in our household. And more than the athletes, I was really focused on the broadcasters and the journalists who brought these stories to light because I think at the end of the day, sports are more than just the, the box score and the outcome. It's stories of these athletes that have come from um, sometimes very difficult situations to being superstars and having huge platforms. And I find a lot of the media personalities I was really gravitated to because they were the ones really enhancing the entertainment and the magnitude of the moment. And when I was young, when I played a lot of video games when I was young, still do on occasion, but I would mute the broadcast and do my own broadcast of it. And that's how I started to really develop a love and a passion for broadcasting. And that's just accelerated now to, as you say, doing a lot of writing, covering the Raptors and the Raptors 905 in particular, Raptors Republic and really getting involved in sports journalism because it's an exciting career and for me I wouldn't want to be doing anything else it doesn't feel like work to me because I love watching and covering these stories that really bring us together who in the game right now then since maybe if I bring Lewis Zatzman on we'll talk about the minutiae of Fred Van Vliet and Chris Boucher things that we both feel strongly about but it seems like you have a deep appreciation for the media landscape. Who is doing the best job within the Raptors right now? Who, who's killing the game? There's so many great personalities. I'll name a few. Doug Smith for the Toronto Star is someone who has covered the team since its inception. And to think that he has seen... Raptors teams just win a little over 20 games to then covering them win a championship is truly awesome. I think of the broadcasters like Matt Devlin, Jack Armstrong, Leo Routens. They've been in the basketball game a really long time. Of course, Leo, the kid from Keel. And, you know, his connection to Toronto is truly inspiring. I think Michael Grange is someone who is a really great writer and has even become, I think, a better on-air reporter and personality, especially in the Raptors covering uh, the championship. And then our guys. I mean, you know, our guys on Raptors Republic, yourself, Lewis, Blake Murphy, obviously, Eric Kareen, a little bit of a different take on it. They're, they're obviously younger, but they bring that passion and enthusiasm. Like, I look at a guy like Blake and just the, the immense statistic knowledge that he brings in every one of his pieces and really going after unique angles to the Raptors, just beyond the scoreline and the outcome. 
I think that's what makes the Raptors media so special is because they really go after and dive deep into the stories not many people will look at and really bring this team to life. And they've done it from a very long time, especially in the dog years of this franchise when when I would say I was a Raptors fan, Sam, people would laugh at me, like, go change another team. So it just shows their dedication to their craft and really enhancing the overall product of the Raptors coverage. Yeah, I've, I've long been proud of how the Raptors have been covered and growing up reading and taking in the content from a lot of the names you mentioned did help incubate and inform how I would start to see basketball and especially how I would read basketball and take it in. So that's, I think that's and if well I can said. Say another thing, Sam, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, of if course. Just, if, if I could just add another thing too, it's objective as well. Like it's like, and that's what I really love about the Raptors coverage as well, because, you know, I, I don't mean to pick on our colleagues south of the border, but they just seem to just, you know, ignore what the Raptors have done and it's just not objectively correct. Like even obviously, you know, we're covering the Raptors and we want to support our team, but objectively, this is a great team. And, you know, I'm just glad that the media members in Canada, you know, cover the team and support the team, but they also cover it through an objective lens, which I appreciate. Yeah. Objectivity is one of the the pillars that everybody aspires for as a journalist and when you work in media, it's uh, it's big time. I want to ask you, it, obviously you have a big sports family. So the Raptors Christmas game, I assume there's probably going to be something happening with that in your family. What, how are you taking in the game? Well, Sam, every Christmas day, I sit in front of the TV and watch Christmas Day basketball games. Even when the Raptors weren't involved, it's a big tradition in our household, but Given that the Raptors are playing, they're the first game on, it will be before our Christmas dinner. We're all going to be in our Raptors gear. A little uh, superstitious note, uh, during the playoff run last year, we have a little Raptors uh, stuffed animal. And for every big game that the Raptors have, certainly in that playoff run, we brought out the stuffed animal. So I know that we're going to bring that stuffed animal out of retirement and watch the game with that. And yeah, I mean, we're all going to be together and family will come as well over the course of the day and they'll take in the action and really get on board with the Raptors because I think that's, what's been so special also about this year of the Raptors winning the championship is people who may not have been basketball fans before, you know, are now starting to get more into basketball and it crosses generations. Like my godmother, she's elderly, wasn't always into basketball, but when the Raptors were on their championship run, she suddenly became very involved in the game and very passionate for the Raptors. She comes always on Christmas, so she'll be supporting the Raptors as well. So long story short, we'll be all around the TV and cheering on the Raptors to, as they beat the Celtics. Does the uh, does the stuffed animal have a name? Uh, 95. 
95. Well, there you go. It's <laughs> uh, the name because, it, I mean, the jersey is 95. So he just said, you know, why not just call it 95? It's the, the, a fantastic year because it was the year that this great franchise was born. It's very uh, Stormtrooper-esque to give someone a number <laughs> as a name. <laughs> I, you know, take it forever where you are. We were also big Star Wars fans, so that uh, probably was involved in the inspiration as well. Perfect. And the last question before I let you get out of here. Which all-NBA team is Pascal Siakam going to make this year? Call me crazy, but I think he's making the first team all-NBA team. And I'll say this right now. He's averaging 25 points per game, 8.6 rebounds per game, 3.8 assists. For the season last year, Siakam averaged 36.9% from three. And this year, just through 20 games, it's 37.6%. So it's getting a lot better. And I just think with more games, he's just going to really develop and really elevate the intangibles. We've already seen that, Sam, this year. But I see, especially in the second half, given his higher usage rate this year, he will start to really take over games with his physicality and his you know, ability to be a really – player so i love what i've seen from him perfect i guess the floor is yours before i let you go you can tell the people where to read you how to take in most of your content and uh or maybe even a book recommendation whatever you're feeling floor is yours mate okay so lucas did this interview from the comfort of an uber and obviously you can hear the car door shut and he left the car towards the end of the interview and what that meant was that the wind was too loud for me to pick up almost any of his audio from this last section, but he said thank you and to follow him at Weiss Sports for his Twitter account, so W-E-E-S-E Sports, and uh, that he's enjoyed covering the different teams this year. But yeah, so that's what happened. All right, man. Thank you so much for coming on. I'll let you get back to your day and uh, take care. All right, Sam. Thanks a lot. Here's the scenario. Your insurance company is denying your long-term disability claim despite the fact that you've paid premiums for years and your own doctor insists that you're not well enough to work. If this sounds familiar, call Goldfinger Personal Injury Law. You'll speak with me, Brian Goldfinger, a licensed and experienced lawyer who practices exclusively on behalf of accident victims, disability claimants, and their families. Visit goldfingerlaw.com and get us working for you. And welcome back, still joining the podcast that is featuring the Raptors Republic colleagues of mine, Samson Folk, still hosting, and joined now by my guy, my buddy, the fantastic writer, Louis Satzman. How are you doing today, man? Hey, buddy. I'm great. I'm, I've been excited to get to this point of the podcast because I so enjoy speaking with you. And there's one thing I really wanted to talk about, as I consider myself a bit of a Lowry expert I know you're the same, but I can always appeal to you on all things Van Vliet. And through a quarter of this season, I've been so intrigued with that pairing and how they've been deployed and used together. And just a Cliff Notes version of what you think that pairing has done so far this season. And then after that, we'll get into it. What do you think? They've been awesome. I mean, together they offer so much primary, secondary creation and, and attacking 
Um, they've been so great on both ends. And it almost reminds me a little bit of the peak of the DeMar-Kyle pairing on offense. They, those two were so good at sort of dishing back and forth, resetting the angle, attack, attack, attack. And Fred and Kyle have that same sort of offensive mind meld. It's really fun to watch them grow. Yeah, the relocation is a huge part of their of their offensive synergy. And I like that you brought that up because you can see when Kyle Lowry, when he was driving, let's say, last night against the Bulls, a lot of people weren't shaping their movement around him. And that meant that a lot of the time he got stuck. And so we saw more mid-range pull-ups from Kyle Lowry than I think in any game we've seen yet this year. It's because people weren't shaping up their cuts off of his drive. OG Ananobi a couple times, but usually we see Kyle Lowry looking into the middle, trying to get the law pass in. There wasn't a lot going on above the break. But usually in a game, Fred Van Vliet is able to bring that in, and he'll shape up off of Lowry's drives. And I think that's a really key aspect of the Raptors' offense. And very similar to when DeMar used to probe, and we see Kyle use tons of relocation to get to his three-point shots. What does, for a small guard, a small two-guard lineup like that, what does the three-point shot do for them to open up their game? Well, everything. I mean, without the three-point shot, there is no pairing. Um, Because, like you say, they're both small. Uh, I don't think defensively it matters almost at all because they are just fantastic rebounders, fantastic switching. But on offense, Kyle's a great finisher, but... A lot of that is because he picks and chooses his spots. You know, he doesn't force up the bad ones, which keeps his percentages high. Um, and Fred is still learning how to do that, so his percentages are low. But but if it was just, you know, the mid-range and in, as it was with DeMar to keep that parallel going, um, it, they really wouldn't have nearly enough options. Uh, that three-point shot keeps everything spread, keeps their uh, their teammates having lots of space to create in. And, uh, yeah, that's that's both of their best weapons, right? That's their 1A offensive game is shooting for both of them. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the defense because the past two games, when I responded to the quick reaction comment, the top voted one on the podcast, both of them have been regarding Lowry and Van Vliet and usually in a complaining manner. So that that confounds me in some way because it confuses me and I don't see that during the game. The complaint seems to be that they are too small to defend as a two-man lineup at, at a high level. But as you said before, they're both excellent defenders. We saw Lowry in the Chicago Bulls game, I think, taking whether it was two charges, three loose ball fouls, just changing possession with his defensive hustle, the way he predicts and anticipates things. And he's, you know, a really good player when it comes to closing out. He's gritty on the defensive glass. He gets after loose balls. And Van Vliet, I think, if anybody was to wax poetic about his defensive ability, you're the guy. I mean, Fred Van Vliet is an elite NBA defender, damn it, I think is the <laughs> reference we're going for. But is have you seen any fall off defensively in that pairing? Is there any passing lanes that are now available to opposing teams now that Lowry and Van Vliet are back in tow. What am I missing something? Or is that no. just maybe a bit of something else? I think it's just people see Toronto has defensive rebounding issues. They see Toronto is under got undersized at one spot, especially Van Vliet at the shooting guard spot, and they equate the two. But 
that's silly. I mean, Van Fleet is better than Norman Powell at blocking out, at rebounding, at switching. There just is no element of rebounding that Norman Powell offers better than Van Fleet. Uh, so I, I don't I don't think that criticism makes sense at all. We've talked about this before, but one of the main strengths of, let's say, the 76ers and why Matisse Thibault had such an awesome game was because the length of the 76ers changes the angle of which the Raptors have to pass. You mm-hmm. can't put as much zip on the ball, a little more lob. A guy like Thibault, he's a ball hawk. He got a lot of steals in that game because he can chase airborne balls now. Do you see, and I haven't seen it, but have you seen where maybe Powell's presence as a 6'4", 6'5", guy with the, I think he has a 6'9", wingspan, him being able to sit on the weak side, does that deter passes more than Fred Van Vliet or Kyle Lowry? Because I know technically it should. I just haven't seen that many aspects of that played out. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I haven't seen it like you. Um, I think the the one point I would bring up to that, though, is Van Fleet is usually used almost like Siakam was last year as a ball hawk. He, I mean, he is switched onto the ball as much as possible. You saw that against James Harden where he was the guy bringing the dedicated double teams. It wasn't, you know, whoever was closest. Van Fleet was the double team. And so the Raptors do a really good job of putting Van Fleet on the ball where his strength and his hands are um, better weapons than his wings or lack of wingspan would be off the ball as a weakness. And so um, you say Powell, you know, off the ball might be a better deterrent, but I'm not sure if that's comparing, you know, two equal things just because Van Fleet spends so little time off the ball. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that the idea of it, the very specific basics of this guy's length, creates different passing lanes, more difficult passing lanes is probably true. Yeah. But whether the Raptors are missing out on that and whether that's been the 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 fall down of the Raptors defense in past games, recent games, I'm just not super sure about that. And like you said, Van Vliet is a superior defender to Norman Powell in a lot of ways. He's not as good at the straight line drive on offense, but I think he outpaces Powell in almost everything else. So thank you for indulging me in this uh, Lowry Van Vliet conversation. I've enjoyed it. But the next one I want to get into, you predicted Siakam's burst, maybe not his full burst, but his burst at the start of last year. And now he's sitting as this player that we see before us. What all NBA team will Siakam make if you'd like to take another punch at prediction? I think... First of all, thank you. That's so kind of you to, to remember all the way back to then. Um, I think first team's probably off the table with uh, with Giannis and LeBron probably locking up the forward spots there. Um, second team seems arguable. I think second team would be would be my guess. Yeah, I'm Andrew Damlin said second team. I think second team as well. Lucas Weiss said first team. Ever the optimist, I think. that's. Could you imagine if he made first team? Good Lord. He would have to take even more steps forward. He's been phenomenal, but I, I don't think the level that he's been at, the peak that he's been at, barring the past week, I don't think that even is good enough for first team. Yeah, and to surpass LeBron or Giannis, not only do you have to be equal, 
at the very least, but you probably, because of the popularity, yeah. have to be way better, I think. So I don't know what LeBron's going to end up averaging this year, but if Siakam wants to pass him, considering the Lakers have such a good record and maybe will continue to do that if they stay healthy, it's he would have to have these exorbitant numbers to be able to pull that off and maybe would have to start shooting nine threes a game and hit like 4.5 and just be a menace like a Carl Anthony Towns offensively while maintaining his defense what do you think yeah it would have I mean his defense has slipped from game to game sometimes he is his old self sometimes he isn't uh it's just so hard to put it all together and consistency I wrote this the other day is the last thing you develop when you're taking steps forward and uh, I mean, for him to be able to fight for first team seems impossible. The second team is interesting because Anthony Davis I, is probably going to be listed as a forward, not a center. And so that gives three forwards, I think, who are almost certainly going to be above Siakam. Uh, it's possible he's pushed down to third team. It, we'll, we'll see where his numbers end up. It's just whether it's hard to know whether his recent slide statistically is more predictive of the future or his early success. Well, I think that's really great that you brought that up because it it introduces a, an intriguing wrinkle, right? Because on the one hand, Davis is probably going to be there, the second team, first team, whatever, but it's going to push a player really good down to the second team, whether it's Davis or another player at the forward position. That yeah. opens up the avenue for Siakam Leonard. Who makes it out of those two? I think that's really interesting to think about is after what happened last year, the fact that Leonard, because he's missing some games, could possibly be lower on the rung, the all-NBA rung, and if you're into true shooting, etc., that Siakam could have a better year than him based on the all-NBA votes. That would be That would be interesting. Yeah, name recognition is such a big part of it. Like you said, Siakam has to really dramatically outperform these guys. And he will be fighting with Kawhi Leonard, with Paul George, with guys whose names are just so far ahead of where Siakam's is. And so, like you say, his statistics will have to be just off the charts to beat them out. And, you know, maybe they will be. But I uh, I think second or third team is, the, is a prediction. I agree with you on that. And the next thing I want to talk about is are you aware of the holiday drink, eggnog? I am, but I, I was a late comer to it. I mean, I only first tried eggnog in university. And what were your thoughts on it after oh, you tried it's, it? It's amazing. It's rich and delicious. It's like steak, but a drink. Steak, but a drink. That's a <laughs> an all-time quote from Lewis Asman. And I was, I was going to ask you to liken it to something, but you already did. And... <laughs> So who on the Raptors would most appreciate a, a steak the drink eggnog in its um, liquid form? That's a good question. I think, uh, I mean, you, you think about p- players who uh, indulge in foods that aren't good for you because eggnog is, if you've ever made it, you know how truly horrible it is for you. Uh, Marcus All comes to mind, but I think he takes really good care of his body during the year. Uh, maybe a guy like Norman Powell. I, it's nobody comes to mind for me. Maybe you take this one first. I I, I gotta go with OG Ananobi, just because everything about him seems 
the opposite of what you might expect. Like if you were doing an interview or just watching videos of them and you hear Pascal Siakam talking, similar build to OG Ananobi, similar height, and OG has some pounds on him, maybe, but similar build. Not not exactly the same, but the difference in pitch between their voices is so much. Like Pascal has like that super deep voice, and then OG kind of delivers his voice down here. Because OG is always doing what you don't expect. And if you were to surprise him in any way, I think he would react the opposite of how you might expect. And so even though OG's jacked and he looks like he's in incredible shape, I bet he can throw down four McDoubles in 25 seconds if he's hungry. And I bet he might go after the eggnog. I could see him sipping on a cup of eggnog just like during a film session or something. Just totally out of place. A very dignified eggnog drinker, but an eggnog drinker nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Do you? I'm I'm interested. How are you taking in the Christmas game? Will Will you have eggnog while you watch it? No. So I I'm a little frustrated about that. I know Toronto fans have been clamoring for a Christmas game for so long, and it's the Celtics, which is fun. But uh, you know, I I will be with my wife's family and have to leave on Christmas morning to go to the game. Um, which seems like a horrible thing to complain about because I get to be at this great game. But at the same time, I, I sort of, uh, I'm new to Christmas. It's not my, my natural holiday. And so I, I wanted to be with family. I was excited. And uh, I'm disappointed that I have to leave. So you'd rather have the Boxing Day game, I guess? I would, yeah. I would, I would rather sit at home drinking eggnog or my... my in-laws home and drinking eggnog taking in the game on television where <laughs> christmas games are meant to be enjoyed at least in toronto well are, are there any benchmarks you're looking for in that game then to make it more enjoyable for you knowing you're missing out on christmas morning well the thing about it is the players don't want to be there either they too want to be with their families and so christmas day games are one of the classic you know, throw all this analysis out the window. So for benchmarks, I, I don't know. I mean, it's always nice to beat the Celtics, but if they do or don't, I don't think it's very predictive of the future. Yeah, I find myself after the Raptors won is that there's a calmness to my fandom, to my writing, although I've always been pretty even-keeled in my writing, but I find that the losses do not bother me, really. And I don't, and it could be biased, but anytime the Raptors do something bad, I just, in my head, I'm like, well, that's not predictive of anything. But when Siakam <laughs> or OG, well, let's say OG, when OG starts stopping and popping and spinning in the lane, I'm like, oh, what? that is a bellwether. Now we've found where OG's headed. And it's just this, these rose-tinted glasses, I find. Yeah, that's, that. I've had the same thing. It's, that's the problem with being a fan first and a, journalist or reporter or whatever you want to call it second is you cannot always disassociate the two somebody who's fantastic at it is will lou um formerly of this podcast he was he's maybe the best in the business at being a huge you know unbelievable fan being an unbelievable analyst and keeping the two completely separate yeah interesting um definitely will lou has always i remember following him on twitter on his rise up, there's arguments, shit talking, like so much stuff that is considered, you know, the epitome 
of the fan experience, the basic part of the fan experience, but then also the 10 things after the game that would be so clinical and analytical and would be so insightful. And it, it was cool to see that wrapped up inside of that. So, yeah, that's a, a good comparison. Yeah. And so taking it back to the Celtics, um, they have a game on the 28th, the Saturday. It's in Boston, but it's a normal start time at 7, whereas Christmas is at noon. Uh, I, I would see the 28th game against the Celtics as far more predictive. Um, and because Toronto has lost games recently against great teams, um, they have a game coming up against the Mavericks on the 22nd, the Pacers the 23rd, the Celtics the 28th. They have another stretch that'll be really, really um, important. And if they don't get any wins against those great teams, then we might start to worry about how Toronto pairs against these other elite teams in the NBA. I think so, too. Very important stretch coming up. And I'll let you stretch your legs for the rest of the day. I'll let you get out of here. But before you do that, Lewis, tell the people where to find you and uh, hit them with a book recommendation or something of yours to read. Whatever you want to say, the floor is yours. Appreciate it. So you can follow me. It's just my name, Lewis Zatzman, Z-A-T-Z-M-A-N, at Twitter. Uh, a book recommendation. I like that. Rather than plugging myself, I've been reading Zolitude by Paige Cooper recently. It's a collection of her short stories, her first book. Uh, it, she's so unique, such a, a beautiful, sensual writer. Uh, nothing I've ever read is like it. It's hard to describe. Just pick it up and I can almost guarantee you'll enjoy it. Perfect. Um, from me, a book recommendation, The Pilgrim's Progress from John Bunyan. John Bunyan's Immortal Dream, written from a prison cell, has become the most famous allegory in English literature. So if you guys want to read either of those books, go ahead. Lewis, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Man, so much fun as always. Thank you. Thank you. And to the listener, whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night, I'm not doing the full goodbye right now because there is another interview coming after this. So stay tuned for that. Lewis, thank you once again. And uh, you'll be hearing from me very shortly. And welcome back to the Raptors Roundtable podcast, where I've gathered together a bunch of my colleagues from Raptors Republic to talk about the Raptors' first quarter of the season, the upcoming Christmas game, etc. Right now joining me, Oren Weisfeld of Raptors Republic, my colleague there. How are you doing today, man? Hey, I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So the first thing I wanted to talk about, because I know that you wrote about OG Ananobi's jump this year, and we'll get into a little bit of it, but we're watching the Raptors in a transition period as Lowry and Siakam work to divvy up possessions in the offense. Mm-hmm. With Ananobi taking large steps this year, and you highlighted getting to the line as a possible progression as well, would you sacrifice possessions with Siakam as a primary initiator to get Ananobi more reps in that area? You're talking in terms of like facilitating playmaking? I'm talking oh. in terms of who's, who's initiating plays up top. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because yeah, Siakam... Yeah. They, they've been reluctant to put him in pick and roll sometimes, still working a lot of those possessions over to Van Vliet, maybe keeping the Siakam pick and rolls for games that matter more against more difficult matchups, that type of thing. But I'm wondering if you think, because the Raptors seem to have a lot of tools, but they're not always constantly using them, there's a fluid offense that the Raptors like to adhere to. Do you think that it's worthwhile to maybe sacrifice a bit of efficiency to give Ananobi reps? Mm. 
That's an interesting question, especially right now, because Ananobi and Powell have kind of been battling it out, especially when Van Vliet was healthy in terms of like who was closing games. And Powell closed two games in a row without Ananobi on the floor. And I don't know if I would say I would give less reps to Siakam in, in order to get more for Ananobi. Because like I said, like he's really he's really improved as a shooter. He's pretty reliable there now. He is starting to take it to the rim more freely recently, but he's still not the playmaker that really anyone else in the starting lineup is. That's easily his weakest part of his game. And I don't think I don't think the Raptors are really willing to sacrifice letting that develop during the season as much as it's something that he has to work on in the offseason because it's just not his role on this team. So I would say no. I wouldn't I wouldn't really in terms of playmaking, in terms of just getting NNOB more shots. Yeah, the Raptors it would be nice to see him get a little more shots, but like nothing is perfect. You can't really draw it up how you would, you know, like ideally like it to go. Sure, a couple more shots per game for NNOB would be ideal. But at this point I think his role on the team has pretty solidified on the offensive end as a spot up threat and he can take guys uh, off the dribble when nothing else is really working, and I think that's fine for him. Okay, so this is something that both you and I have written about then, is Ananobi maximizing his role within the team. I talked about his defense and how he's come along as a baseline cutter, spacing the floor, shaping up off of drives. you talking about a lot of the similar things in your piece, I think it was three weeks ago, and you're mm-hmm. talking about him getting to the line. If you were to like in your piece, say that he needs to get to the line. That's another real progression that will help take him to the next level. What are the real ways in which he can do that without demanding more of the offense? I think the biggest thing he needs to work on is tightening up his dribble because there's a lot of times where someone will bite his pump fake or, and then he has a free lane to go to the middle, but he just is hesitant to do it because his dribble isn't that tight and he knows as soon as he gets in the paint, there's going to be bodies coming at him. So the biggest thing for him in terms of getting to the line is definitely tightening up the dribble. Um, what was the other part you asked? Sorry, I forgot. Oh, that was that was pretty much it. It was just talking about because, like you said, maybe it's not worth it to start divvying up the possessions to him as an initiator because obviously giving someone possessions is a good way to get more free throw attempts or more shots up. But if the Raptors were going to try and OG was going to try to get more of those types of offensive possessions for himself, how how could he do right. that within yes. the type of possessions he's already getting? Yeah, so other than the dribble is what causes his, him hesitancy, but I still think he should be more regard, uh, aggressive regardless, especially when he's mismatched with someone smaller, which will often happen. Like if Ananobi's playing the three, which he usually is, sometimes he's even playing the two these days. He's bound to be matched up on smaller people. Um, that's just the nature of the game. Like a lot of shooting guards are tiny compared to him, and I think he needs to take better advantage of those mismatches, just posting up or taking them off the dribble, going to the hoop. Yeah, and that's something I've noticed he's gotten better at this year. Is he has taken a couple players into the post, and his balance when he is performing spin moves or up and unders when he said to towards the rim has gotten better. You did acknowledge in your piece that sometimes he will reset the offense, much to your chagrin, much to mine as well, that it is <laughs> right. disappointing when he has a size disadvantage. But I think the balance is coming along pretty well. Obviously, he still has a way to go, but what do you think about that? 
Yeah, I, I would agree with you. In the last few weeks, he has been more aggressive. He, his free throw attempts have gone up a little bit. Um, it was kind of interesting because when Lowry was injured for that 10-game run or whatnot, Ananobi's numbers actually kind of fell off a cliff, whereas everyone around him, their numbers went up. Van Vliet's numbers went up. Siakam's numbers went up. Powell's numbers went up. And Ananobi was the only guy who kind of struggled with with Lowry out of the lineup. And I really think that has to do with just, like, Lowry's the guy who can get everyone involved on his team, whereas Van Vliet is, like, still coming along. He'll run a good two-man game with Siakam. He'll take big men off the dribble. He's good at running the offense, but I think Ananobi really suffered when Lowry was out of the lineup. Yeah, especially since there is um, an essence of Lowry's offensive game that he uses the whole floor offensively, but Van Vliet mm-hmm. seems to be fragmented. There's only three players involved in an offensive set at once, but when Lowry has the ball, maybe all five players are dangerous at once. There's a little bit of that aspect to it. What do you think? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. He, he sees the floor a little bit better, and, and he also just makes a point to get his teammates involved because like, as a veteran— he understands that like from the get-go, you want OG to feel like, all right, my shot's going in today, whereas Van Vliet can be a little more selfish or a lot more selfish, actually. <laughs> yeah, and also with, with Ananobi, I think the way he attacks the rim is either it's straight up and down and there's not a lot of people around him, and that's when he's off two feet and he's dunking. It's kind of like a standing dunk animation in NBA 2K. That's a really strong finish for him. He's a really, really strong guy. But when he jumps off one foot which a lot of players do draw free throws when they're jumping off of one foot, is that he kicks his legs out and provides a buffer already in that way, so he's not getting a lot of contact up top. It's a lot of the really, really good players who draw free throws. They have a lot of motion up top. You see guys like Harden, Kemba Walker, Lowry, DeRozan, guys like that. There's a lot of movement in their their elbows and the way that they're getting into players, their shoulders as well, and Ananobi doesn't have that type of fluidity offensively to draw fouls. Even Pascal Siakam, who isn't a really good guy at drawing fouls yet, there's a lot of shimmy in his shoulders, and he's changeable in that way, and Ananobi hasn't really developed in that way. And maybe he won't. He's a very, very different physical specimen. I think it's strange how he performs um, athletic feats. No, oh, yeah, you saw that a couple times last night against uh, Chicago. He when when he can't go up with two hands, he missed a couple like kind of wide open layups, but kind of there was pressure coming. And I think he struggles with pressure at the rim a lot. He doesn't really like you'll see a guy like Lowry go into the contact and then try to finish. And Anobi will never do that. He'll always go for the finish, and if contact comes, then he'll kind of shy away last minute sometimes. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, we talked about Siakam for a tiny little bit, but I want to zero in on that. This is the question. Well, one of the two questions I'm asking to everybody for this podcast is, which all-NBA team do you think Pascal Siakam will make? <laughs> That's hard. I haven't really thought about the forwards because it's you got to do it by position above him. Probably second, though, if I had to guess right now. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good guess. I had second. Lewis had second. Andrew Damlin had second. Lucas Weiss said first, so Mm -hmm. above Giannis and LeBron, which would be insane. But second seems like the safe safe guess, even if maybe a little bit optimistic because Anthony Davis might register as a forward. So depends where Luka Doncic is considered, all those types of things. But second would be massive for Siakam. But I think that does speak to his, um, his upside. He'll also get paid more if he makes a second team. 
which is always nice. You yeah. like it when guys get the bag, definitely. Mm-hmm. Is there any aspects of his game that you think need to be upheld at the same level they are now for him to make the second team? Yeah, a lot of them. Like, I'm I'm the guy who's usually like hesitant to. I always like to see like at least like 20 games before like I jump to conclusions. So like Siakam being in the MVP conversation like 10 games in really gave me like pause because even though what he was doing was sustainable because you've seen it all before, it was also like, all right, I need to see this longer to make sure that this guy really is like an MVP candidate. So I'm kind of still in that phase where, like, right now, Siakam, a lot of people rank him, like, fifth in the MVP conversation. I think it's going to be hard for him to stay in that conversation, but I definitely think it's possible. I think the biggest thing, and he's talked about it, Nurse has talked about it, everyone's talked about it, is just his aggression. Because, like, you look at the stats, Siakam's, like, a top 10 post-up player. He's, like, a top 15 isolation player in terms of points per game. So he's really elite when it comes to scoring and like being that down the stretch guy. It, it seems like he could be, but recently in the past couple of weeks, he's just kind of shied away from that role uh, against like Miami in the fourth quarter in overtime. I think he had like one bucket maybe. So it's about aggression for him, understanding his role in the team and just feeling more confident that like, all right, yes, these are my teammates. Yes, they're good, but this is my team at this point, and I need to treat it that way. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up, that he's he's obviously very good in isolation. He's very good in post-ups, but there has been this trend in the NBA where maybe there's a little bit less creativity in establishing post-ups than there used to be. Like, there used to be the screen and the flash cut into really good post position. Then whoever could get to the big man had to guard him there. A lot of the time, the Raptors are just throwing it into the post, and he's having to go against, like we saw against the 76ers, and Al Horford, who's a really good primary defender, and then even if he does get past them, he has to go at, at one of Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid, who's hanging out on the weak side. That's a really tough thing, even for a really accomplished post player, and I think the Raptors have to have a little bit more ingenuity in how they use him and how they deploy his skill set if he wants to maintain a second team all nba thing but i i also have faith in nick nurse to do that Mm -hmm. and the last question i have for you how are you taking in the christmas game what are you doing for it no plans yet but i'm sure i'll watch it with some friends probably interesting you you do christmas with friends no i don't celebrate christmas i'm jewish so i just find other jews and we hang out (laughs) i guess yeah maybe i shouldn't have assumed but Lewis Lewis said this was his first thing. He he expressed disappointment because because he's doing it with in-laws. Um, yeah. He's Jewish as well, and he, he was saying that he was disappointed he had to go to the arena. So uh. I'll, I'll take his spot if he's too disappointed. Yeah, <laughs> I'll tell him to swing the credentials over to you. Does it yeah. does it make you happy that the Raptors get the credit of a Christmas game, or are you fairly indifferent to that? No, that that makes me happy, and I think against Boston, it'll kind of be a perfect matchup because obviously the teams have a history, um, and right now I'd say they're very evenly matched in terms of this season's teams. So I think it'll be a big test for both teams, especially like in the bright lights and see who can come out on top. So I'm, I'm excited about it. Yeah, and I think it's the perfect opportunity for the Raptors to prove that the Celtics are frauds. That's, yeah, that's what sure. I'm rooting for. 
Who's a? Uh, I really like Jason Tatum, and I really like Jalen Brown. What What's your take on the Celtics so far this year? If you have one. I think they're good. Um, yeah, they are. It sucks, I, but they are. <laughs> no, yeah, they're they're for real. I'd say they have a trade in them, and that's what scares me. Like Kevin Love to the Celtics would scare me, um, but as currently constructed, I wouldn't take them over too many teams in the East. I'd still take Philly, Milwaukee, Toronto over them, maybe Miami over them, partly just because they don't have enough big man depth and partly because they're kind of untested. Like, what's Kemba's? Has Kemba been to the playoffs? One year. When him and uh, Jeremy Lin were, it was those two running the Hornets, and Lin had that good year, and then Lin signed with the Brooklyn Nets after, and then tore up his knee. But I remember that was Kemba's one year in the playoffs. I think they played the Bulls. I'm not sure if I remember that correctly. But, yeah, Kemba doesn't really have a whole laundry list of experience in the playoffs and certainly Jason Tatum Jalen Brown who I both like a lot Marcus Smart is obviously a very real player yeah. but yeah it's um those it'll guys be interesting have some, to see. but like they're still playing like three rookies in their rotation right yeah so I don't know Carson Edwards the Grants yeah I like Grant Williams I think he man he played really good when the Raptors played him mm-hmm. he stonewalled Marcus all but uh, uh, I feel- no, yeah, like they're for real. But when I think about the playoffs, like the Raptors give me hope because that experience is is going to be very important when when we're coming up against teams like Miami or Boston. Yeah, I think the Raptors. I was I think I predicted them as a second round out to one of Philly too. or Milwaukee, and if they don't play Philly or Milwaukee, I think they go to the third round. If somehow they didn't end up playing Philly or Milwaukee. But um, that's what I predicted. But I think the Raptors, they'll be a hell of a series in the second round for anybody, whether they win or lose. They, uh, there's a lot of variability to the Raptors' offense and a lot of changeability and tenacity in their defense. They could be a very, very difficult out in the playoffs. Yeah, I, I also started uh, assuming they would get out in the second round. Right now, I'm a lot higher on the Raptors. I think the best version of the Raptors is probably better than the best version of ev- any team in the East other than the best version of Philly, maybe. And I have enough confidence in Nurse and the guys that they can get to that version by the time the playoffs roll around. And that, that is an expression of optimism in, I would assume, Ananobi, <laughs> Siakam, and Van Vliet, probably. Uh, the whole team, like, Mark's been playing incredibly well. I think the Raptors could have a trade in them. I wouldn't put anything past Masai. Uh, I think Ibaka, people aren't going to like this, but I think he is somewhat of an expendable player if, if they do want to make a trade. And I just think the experience we gained from last year and the jumps Van Vliet and Siakam and Ananobi have taken, like, the biggest reason I wasn't going to take the Raptors to come out of the East at the big, at the start of the season was just, like, star power. Like, we didn't have a superstar. But we kind of do now with Siakam. So if Siakam can stay in this MVP conversation level of play, second-team All-NBA level of play, then I'm not sure how many teams are better than us. Yeah, it's a little crazy to look at Siakam now and compared to where he was two years ago, and even crazier to see how good OG Ananobi is now and then to say, oh, the Raptors won the chip last year without him even playing a game in the playoffs. It's all a bit outrageous. 
It is outrageous. Ananobi is outrageous. And I think, I think like, yeah, he's taken a leap this year, but I think, like, long-term, he's still of our, one of our younger prospects, and I think long-term, Ananobi is going to be scary. I Just the way he's been able to shore up his balance issues as far as his offense and been able to maintain the best parts of his defense and his shooting, I just, I'm really impressed with Ananobi. But before I let you get out of here, the floor is yours if you want to give the people a book recommendation, um, the highway to your Twitter page, whatever you want to do, man. The floor is yours. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Oren Weisfeld. But here's my biggest take that people, a lot of people probably won't like. I feel like it's time, maybe not yet, give it a couple more games, but I feel like the Raptors' offense, since Lowry's comeback, has not looked so good. Uh, I think a lot of people would agree that's not so outrageous to say. When it was Van Vliet running the show without him, it looked a lot better. And this isn't anything against Lowry, but I think when only one point guard is in the starting lineup, it allows Gasol a, a much more bigger role in the facilitating. His assists, he was averaging seven assists per game when uh, Lowry and Ibaka were injured, and like three on the season. So I think you get Gasol more involved when only one of those guys is starting. So I'm a proponent of bringing Powell into the starting lineup and either Van Vliet or Lowry off the bench. There it is. Either one. That is Honestly, I don't even know which one. I don't know which one. I think it'll work with both, but we'll see. That is a scalding hot take. I love it. Gasol can be Nikola Jokic on the offensive end. Why not play it through him a little bit more? I, I certainly like that aspect of the Raptors' offense when they use him as a conduit to connect a lot of the different um, areas of the floor. They just get the ball to him in the middle, let that size in the passing lanes that his height affords him um, create a lot of chances. I, I like it. Yeah, because like, I feel like the Raptors' biggest like identity, the biggest thing about their identity is that they're unpredictable and can beat you in a lot of ways. And when Lowry and Van Vliet are running the show, it gets a little more predictable. It's like those two taking turns. Whereas when Gasol is like the facilitator, you really have no idea what's coming. Like his passes, you know, you might find a cutter under the basket. He might just swing it to like a corner. You never know. Interesting. I can't say I agree wholeheartedly. I agree with a lot of components of what you said. But also, uh, interesting. I'd have to look into it a little bit more deeply, and maybe I'll do that once we're once we're finished here. Oh, but, yeah, it's a it's a pretty premature take because they've only been back together for like three or four games since Larry got back. But it's something to keep an eye on. That's I'm very happy you brought this on the podcast. It's definitely food for thought, and uh, I'm gonna chew on it for the rest <laughs> of the day. I'll let All you right. get out of here though, man. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Alright, so I have decided to chop this podcast into two parts. A lot of the interviews ran a little long, which is totally fine, and there's just too many people to get in, so this was part one. Part two will be coming out next week. It'll be people like Matt Shantz, Joshua Howe, Anthony Doyle, Kelsey O'Brien, if we're lucky. I'm trying to get her on for this. So that's coming in a week, but for this, this is the end of this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it immensely. There's a ton of talent on the Raptors Republic team, and I'm very happy to bring that to light on the podcast and interview everybody. So this was cool for me to do. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye. 
The Drinkworks Home Bar by Keurig is the perfect gift or addition to a small gathering. The Home Bar makes over 30 drinks from cosmopolitans to old fashions at the push of a button. Just insert the pod, press start, and enjoy. Each Drinkworks pod contains real ingredients and premium spirits. For a limited time, get $50 off the Home Bar with promo code HOLIDAY. Go to drinkworks.com to order now. Drinkworks. Press play. Keurig is a registered trademark of Keurig Green Mountain, Inc. Used under license. Please enjoy responsibly. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. For the ones standing guard. For the eagle-eyed. For the knights in shining armor. And for all those who support them. We are Granger, your experienced safety partner. Offering supplies and solutions for every industry. Committed to helping keep your facilities safe. And your people safer. Call clickgranger.com slash safety or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.